If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. We're back again with another amazing guest, um, a new friend that I met actually while I was speaking in New York in May. I was at the New York Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers Conference and really honored that Kelly had reached out to me many months ago asking me to come and be the survivor voice, the perspective of a survivor among so many clinicians um, who really mostly work with those who have committed sexual crimes. And so they don't often hear from a survivor and it was just such an honor to be kind of the closing speaker that week. And I have all thanks to Kelly for bringing me in. And so in response, I had an amazing time there and wanted to bring her on to our show and let her kind of talk about her experiences and her work, but also some things that she's been doing on colleges lately. So welcome, Kelly Bunt. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about your work, um, but I really wanted to tackle something that you had mentioned to me that you've been doing lately, and that is working with local colleges on how they respond to individuals found responsible for sexual misconduct on campus. And as you know, mostly what I do and what I've done for the last 16 years of my life is speaking on college campuses and universities across America and, you know, shedding light on sexual abuse and and rape and problems within the campuses. And honestly, I have been very disappointed in so many of the stories that I've heard from survivors mm -hmm. who come forward. Um, but there's also the other side of those who, you know, are responsible for the crime. And so I'm really mm -hmm. excited to kind of tackle that with you. But but could you first just share a little bit about your work and your background and even some of your story, if you don't mind? Sure, sure, absolutely. So I started my career um, working as a victim advocate, actually, um, <clears throat> about 15 years ago. And, um, you know, when I graduated college, I sort of fell into the work um, at a local agency um, who has the rape crisis program. And I was there for about three years. And I knew that that was my passion. I loved working with survivors. I loved the work that I did um, as a victim advocate. And I wanted to continue in that work. But um, I had just gotten my master's and I wanted to go on for my clinical degree. And there was no work there for me um, for, to do clinical work. So it was so, talk about a twist of fate. At my, uh, I had, <laughs> had interviewed at another agency, got another job, and at my goodbye party, um, the woman who turned out to be my mentor in this field and who I owe a lot of my um, success to today, she at my goodbye party says, "Oh, it's too bad you didn't want to you didn't want to work um, in the sex offender program," and it was like mm -hmm. a record screeched. You know, everything came to a halt, wow. and. Um, 
So she had, I had a week left at that agency and she had said, why don't you come on over and um, sit in on some groups and see if you like it. Mm -hmm. So I did that and interviewed for the job and um, got the job. Um, So I started working in the treatment of sexual abusers for in 2006 um, and have been doing it since. And I realized, you know, I certainly did not wake up one day and say, this is what I want to do yeah. for my life. <laughs> no kidding. But, but um, when I started doing the work, I realized how um, much I was still working for victims. Mm. Um, and, you know, from the perspective where what I was doing was really prevention work and it's not primary prevention, um, it's somewhere in that secondary to tertiary prevention. Um, and I felt so much more um, in control. I mean, I, that sounds maybe a little funny, but um, I felt more in control of, of, of um, being able to, to do something, yeah. you know, being able to make a difference, being able to, to um, make an impact um, in the lives of those who, you know, could be potential, potential victims. So mm-hmm. um, making the community safer. Um, it's funny when I tell people that um, my, my mission, so the work that I do with people who've committed sexual offenses, um, it's, you know, it's, it's therapy, it's treatment, but it's, it's very different than, you know, if, if I went out to find my own therapy, which would be self-directed, right. self-determination, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, it's court-directed. not, <laughs> Yeah, they have sure, to come sure. to you. Yeah, mandated. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, and it's not, you know, this sort of feel-good therapy. And when I talk to mm-hmm. attorneys who might refer people or um, other people in the community who might have questions about it, you know, I, 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 I tell them that, um, you know, my mission as a, as a treatment provider working with this population is community safety. That's my, that's my, my mission. That's my client. My mm-hmm. client is the community. And of course my clients, my direct clients, they're my clients too. And I treat them with all the respect, um, you know, that I would treat anybody that I worked with, even mm-hmm. if I was outside of this, this population. Um, but that's, you know, my, my client is, is the community. So, yeah, so, I so I that. did sort of fall into, yeah, I fell into this work. Um, and I, you know, I feel very, very, lucky and fortunate to to have done so because it's just been great Mm. it really has been great so Mm. that's that's my story (laughs) yeah well i i really appreciate that and i think you know most of our listeners are survivors and you know it's Mm -hmm. hard to often for us to even think about people who have compassion for those who've hurt us so deeply um but on the flip side i greatly appreciate the way that you look at that and to know that those who have been you know, found guilty for their for their actions and the, the crimes that they've committed are under the care of someone who looks at it the way that you do. And right. for you to say mm-hmm. that, you know, you're treating this person and this population, but your actual client is is the community. I mean, that mm-hmm. that just feels so safe to me. And yeah, I'm grateful right, that right. there are people out there that are doing that work um, while yeah. we're out here, you know doing our work to heal ourselves sure. too. We're all in sure. that business of, of being sure. a part of a healthier community. And um, so that's, that's really great. Right. So thank you for what right. you do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so do you still stay connected to survivor advocacy as well? 
Um, I do. I have, um, you know, I sit on multidisciplinary teams mm-hmm. in um, the county that I that I work in. Um, one of the one of my jobs, um, really a volunteer position for me at this point, um, is um, I'm uh, the chair of, of um, victims called the Victim Subcommittee. Uh-huh. Um, in the in the county that I work, there's a um, criminal justice council. It's, it was a legislative appointed council um, to ensure that the that the criminal justice system in Dutchess County is working. Um, you know, efficiently and effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and as being a part of that that council, council members have subcommittees. You know, because there's many facets of the criminal justice system and many different populations that belong to the criminal justice system. Um, so victims being part of that system, um, there was a, a committee that was created, um, particularly to make sure victims um, are being, you know, that any gaps in the system where victims might interface, um, that that's being um, I, I identified mm-hmm. um, and that work is being done to promote effectiveness and efficiency for victims in the, in the system. So I chair um, that committee. And um, so I'm still very much connected with our victim services um, in Dutchess County mm-hmm. um, and the work that, you know, the work that we do to support victims. So yeah. absolutely. That's great. I, I'm always surprised, honestly, when speaking at a conference like the New York ATSA, where so many of the people there will say, you know, this is the first time I've met a survivor, you know? Wow. And so I think wow. it's great yeah. that you specifically are, are surrounding yourself with that. And, you know, yeah. you have all the different angles and perspectives coming into your practice. And I think that's really yeah. important. And I, and I do... Yeah, I think to be able to do this work, and, and it's not, you know, and this is not to um, undermine or malign anybody who, who maybe has not, who does do this work and hasn't uh-huh. seen the other side of the, of the coin um, in working with survivors. Um, but I do think, you know, having that perspective, having that balance um, is really important because mm-hmm. so much of the work that I do here treating the person who committed the offense is from that victim-centered approach. Um, And if you don't understand, you know, what is happening Mm. for victims, for survivors, um, you know, then maybe you can't treat the person as effectively um, because you might be missing something. Um, So so that crossover for New York State ATSA and um, New York State Alliance, um, which is our our other organization um, in New York State, um, that, you know, works with the local chapters or the local community to, to make sure the, the treatment and the research is, is accurate mm. um, and accurately being applied. So, so we are, are the board members on the New York State Alliance and New York State ATSA, we are very much committed to making sure um, there is communication across, um, you know, both avenues and that, that we are speaking with victim services and we are collaborating and, and mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, so that victim services and victim advocates know that we are doing this work for the same reasons that, that they are. So mm, that's great. really important. Yeah, I think it is too. And, you know, I mentioned having spoken on so many colleges and, and just looking at the statistics of how much sexual assault is happening on college campuses. And you mm-hmm. know, I know there was a report that, that came out, um, in 2015 from 
the Association of American Universities. It just the, the statistics are staggering. And um, I think what do they say about 14 percent of students that responded? Was, yeah. Had experienced mm-hmm. some form of, yeah. of sexual assault or sexual harassment. And, yeah. I mean, those are just the ones that were admitting to it. And how right. are colleges going right. to change that? Um, that's very important to me because my yeah. main population that I love and care for is the college student generation. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, these students are getting away from a home life where probably, you know, one in three girls, one in six boys are sexually abused by the time they even get to college. So they're coming mm-hmm. in with mm-hmm. baggage already. Many are very vulnerable right. to a sexual assault, but it's the time for them to heal from that and, and begin that process. But then in that process, oftentimes they are re sure re-offended yeah. against. So, you know, mm-hmm. how are we going to empower the colleges to be an answer to this problem? And I'm wondering yeah. what you're seeing. I think what I've seen is colleges continuing to do the bare minimum because they're oftentimes protecting themselves um, right. rather yeah. than mm-hmm. students. And when I say students, I mean both the accused, you know, and right. the accuser. Right. So, I don't know, yeah. just would love to kind of pick your brain and, and hear what you've sure. kind of been working on in that field. Sure, absolutely. So I got involved with the colleges um, probably about three years ago now. Um, so I think it was when the Enough is Enough Act um, came out. Mm-hmm. I realized that um, in, in one of my conversations with um, what, what we have here again in Dufus County is um, the sexual assault. We have a sexual assault response team, mm-hmm. um, and I was speaking with that coordinator um, because I, I realized that she was on a campus committee for sexual assault. And I said to her one day, I said, "What are they doing with the college students that are found responsible?" Mm-hmm. And her and I both looked at each other like. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing right. is really being done. Because, <laughs> you know, in Dutchess County, we're, mm. we're a pretty si- decent-sized county. But I was working at that time before I came out of my private practice. I was working in one of the only treatment programs that served individuals who committed sexual offenses. And I wasn't seeing any college students come through that program. Oh, wow. So I said, well, what's happening to these these students? Exactly. So I had asked her if I could speak to the the committee that she um, chairs. And so out of that, so I did. Mm-hmm. And out of that came um, some invitations for me to go to a few of the college campuses in this area. So I started to do some research into what it, what's the legislation, you know, what, what are colleges responsible to do? And mm-hmm. what I realized, you know, and, and the legislation, it, it, it's wonderful in that its focus is victim services. Mm-hmm. And, and that is great. And, and the services should go to the victims and the survivors. Mm-hmm. But there's this other piece, too, that's missing. So I said, well, all of this information and all this research and all these resources, it's going to the victims and the survivors. But what about the responsible parties? What is happening to those individuals so that they're not going on to do this again? Because right. that's the main goal, right, is Absolutely. to, um, you know, get the survivors the the resources attach the resources so that they can begin to heal and on the other side get the responsible person to the resources so that they can 
change their behavior yeah. so that this doesn't continue to happen. Right. And I wasn't finding anything in the in the in the in the laws that mm-hmm. said that mm-hmm. colleges have to respond in this way for the respondents no. or for the responsible. I party. mean, the most I've seen, the most is they get expelled. <laughs> you know. Yes. Right. So that was so, and and with expulsion. There's something that can go on their transcript or some, some, some language that can go on their transcript. But what I learned is that they, the responsible person can, after a year's time, can contact the college and ask the college to have that removed. Oh, wow. Wow. They have the right to do that. Within now, 12 whether months. Now, whether or not the college. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm, right. And the college doesn't need any verification that there's been any change, change or yeah. that there's been any, um, you know, work done. But the student has that right to do that. Um, and whether or not the colleges do that, you know, that's uh, I haven't seen anything about, you know, how many colleges change their transcript. Um, right. But so expulsion is definitely a, a, a consequence that happens. But what I said to the colleges when I started going to talk with them individually is, you know, they, they would say to me, well, well, we would remove them from our campus. And I said, OK. Are you removing all of them? Are they all getting expelled? Because if the, you know, the statistics show that I think it's, as you said, you saw a study that said 14. I think I I saw a study that said 20% in five years will be. um, Yeah, well, it's one in four female college students, but 14% said they had actually experienced a rate before graduation. Okay. You know, so I, I said, are, are you, you, you're not expelling them all. And they, and they said, no, we're not. Right. So, so I had said to them, what is it that you're doing with them? What, you know, if you're sanctioning them by suspending them for a time being, what's, what are, what's the work that they're doing in that time of suspension? Mm-hmm. If you're allowing them to be on campus, how are you managing their behavior? How are you? Um, accounting for their behavior while they're on campus, you know, so, and, and then, you know, I would say to them, and before you even get to that point where you start sanctioning them, how are you making the decision that this is a person who should or should not be on campus? Mm -hmm. You know, they're in, in, in my field, a risk assessment. So assessing somebody's risk of reoffending is what we use to determine how much treatment this person needs to get for how long, you know, what's the intensity, what are their needs, how do we target those specific needs? You know, it's very um, uh, empirically based and, and, and specific. You don't, if, if your goal is to reduce risk of sexual harm, you want to make sure you're targeting the things that actually reduce that risk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when I work with my clients here, I'm not just shooting from the hip, which I feel very grateful for that there's been so many people in this in the research field with this particular population who have put so much time and energy into into looking, you know, looking into what actually makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say to colleges, how are you assessing that? And, you know, they they would have answers, but but none of them were really um, answers that were specific to this population, not specific to what I know to work with this population. So what I encourage them to do is to think about it, you know, as, as you said, Nicole, you know, there, there's a liability issue there, you know, and they're thinking about it from the perspective 
of their campus, of their school. And Mm -hmm. I I get that. I I do understand that. Mm -hmm. But if you step outside of that, you know, and take a look at what's actually happening, are you really decreasing your liability? And the answer would be no. No, Absolutely. You're not. not. No. You're not. Um, So, you know, so so I, I would say to them, I understand the term sex offender feels uncomfortable. And I understand that you don't want to be thinking about the students on your campus as sex offenders. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily 100% disagree with that. There are dynamics that are different for those on college campuses that commit sexual assault versus those outside of the college campuses. Not Mm -hmm. wholly different, but some factors are different. And we have to take a look at those things. So I would say to them, I understand that it's uncomfortable to think about them like that. But if we were to take that person who committed that act and place them on the sidewalk outside of your campus, if you just look at the behavior, they would be considered somebody who committed a sexual offense. Mm -hmm. So we have to treat them as such. We have to treat that behavior. Mm -hmm. um, Well, it's the same when we come down to the the issue in the church, I think. It's like these little bubbles where Mm -hmm. things are being treated differently, like like it's not a crime because it happened here on our campus or, you know, within our walls. But it is a crime. And when we don't treat it that way, it hurts everybody. Right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, so so I've offered to do risk assessments for local colleges Mm -hmm. um, to assist them in the process. So once a victim reports, um, you know, and and the Title IX process, uh, once they get involved in the Title IX process, if that's the process they choose, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've offered to be able to do assessments for colleges so that they know what they're dealing with. They know, you know, the scope of the problem that they're dealing with and they can make decisions based on that information. You know, a good assessment is the best thing you can have Mm -hmm. moving forward um, to be able to make really sound (laughs) decisions um, for the student. You know, maybe this is a student that can stay on campus. Maybe this is a student that maybe he has to be removed from campus but he can still attend classes and there has to be safety planning and management, um, you know, involved with this, with this student. The, the victim should be involved in this process mm-hmm. um, as well. They should be kept informed and yes. made aware. I think that's um, one of the said, biggest problems I've seen is the transparency through that whole process yeah. on campuses. Yeah. I feel like yeah. people are left out, but you know, we need, they need to learn what's happening as it's happening. Otherwise, it becomes this hierarchy and, you know, everyone's in the dark and nothing good happens when when that's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've said said to the colleges, too, you know, because it is such an underreported offense, particularly in college campuses, because the students, you know, there's a a plethora of information out there about how much students don't trust the process. Mm -hmm. Um, So they don't come forward and they and they use these sort of more underground ways of, of, of finding, you know, their voice and, and, and obtaining their healing. And, and um, yep. I said to colleges, colleges, I said, if your student body knew that you had a plan in place for how to effectively deal with the responsible person, mm-hmm. if your victims and your survivors knew that the person that they were reporting about 
was getting help. Mm. Wouldn't that possibly, I mean, we don't know for sure, but, you know, just common sense, logically speaking, wouldn't that help people to come forward more? Wouldn't that help them trust the process Mm -hmm. more if they knew that these people were getting help, you know? Yes. And they agree. (laughs) Yeah. I get a lot of head nods around. I bet you do. We're <laughs> you know? head nodding over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I still, I don't, I don't see it. I don't yeah. see, I still don't see a lot of people coming through my office. The other thing, which I think is important for people to know is that um, colleges, you know, and, and, and they are against this barrier as well. Not all their students are local, and a lot of them aren't local, actually. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if they were to suspend them and um, require that these students get treatment, um, they don't necessarily know who, what treatment provider is in their student's hometown. And so that's another service that I've offered them, you know, as a New York State um, ATSA mm-hmm. member, as a national ATSA member, yeah. um, I have access to the member directory for all ASA certified therapists mm. um, in our in our country, um, as well as some international. Um, so, so yeah. I've said to them, please, like if you're sending somebody, you know, to Washington, sending them home to Washington, yeah. I'll look them up. I'll look up who is in the directory mm-hmm. in their, you know, in their area. That's so, so great. That That's something I them. love about the ATSA just nationally is just the connectedness, the networking that can be done. You can quickly, you know, resource someone anywhere in the sure. country because you're sure. all connected. I think that's wonderful. Right. I think right. it's great that you're offering yeah, I mean, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. They, um, you know, there's a lot of therapists who, I've, I mean, I've seen letters. I've seen therapists write letters. This person learned from their mistake, you know, a mistake. First of all, that's not at all what it is. All right, yeah. in the trash. Um, <laughs> they learned from their mistake, yeah. and they're not a risk to reoffend. And I'm, you know, I see these letters, and my eyes like mm. pop out of my head. Like, yeah. what are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, so so people can find, and it, and again, it's I don't think it's out of um, people wanting to be cruel or not take this seriously, but people just don't know, you know? Um, so, so colleges will get those letters from therapists and say, okay, they're good to come back. Mm. You know? So, so again, from, from a liability perspective, if that's the college's main focus, wouldn't you want to make sure this person is going to somebody who's actually going to treat the behavior Mm -hmm. effectively and in the, you know, in the effort to reduce, risk of doing this again yeah it just seems like so often the universities are taking this path of least resistance right to protect themselves Mm -hmm. from the scrutiny or whatever but what we really need to do is get them to see that if you genuinely work to improve the process the overall process and find your best practice it's going to be exactly what you're talking about sure sure and, you know, and I've tried, I, I do believe because there's been so much focus on those in the last few years, mm. I, I have, I have faith and a, a belief that, that something will change where mm. the colleges will, will have to mm-hmm. right now. They don't have to, and I'm trying to get them to, you know, try to motivate them mm. to sort of get it, you know, get in front of it and be yeah. innovative and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, do something that, that is 
um, demonstrated to to work, and we're all working for the same goal and the same yeah. purpose. Yeah. Um, but you know, sometimes it takes sort of the heavy hand to get people to to put things in place. And mm-hmm. and I do believe, I do believe that will come. I mm-hmm. hope it's sooner than <laughs> I hope it's sooner than later. Do you think it comes um, down to individual universities seeing the need and I understanding what do. we're talking about? Yeah, rather than yep, like an overarching. Absolutely new law or something yeah 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 i mean right like even the colleges you know i think i have like five or six colleges in my area Mm -hmm. um and and i've seen a difference in all of them you know the ones that have invited me in and have really tried to use me and the ones who were like yeah 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 we'll we'll give you a call (laughs) unfortunately it's probably until shit hits the fan before they realize the need you know, exactly. people often have to get hurt before they wake up and see the need, unfortunately. But I'm glad that you're doing what you can yeah. where you're at. Yeah. And it is part of, I think, my passion, too, to, to begin to help more of these universities to look at some of these policies they have in place. I'm wondering your right. feedback on the clause, the Title IX clause that um, basically says that the respondent has to directly cross-examine the survivor. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like Um, in the university hearings, I think the transparency thing is huge for me, but also just how they're navigating the the university hearings. I think it's very difficult, especially for survivors to be cross-examined by this person that, you know, they're they're claiming has hurt them. What do do you think about that? Do you think that's appropriate? I I feel like it's inappropriate. No, I don't think that's brutal, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I think having students serve in any capacity as their own sort of like representation is in this kind of context is, you know, that's, that's kind of crazy to think. <laughs> it's just yeah. a young, you know, we have these young emerging adults yeah. and, 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 and they're faced with this, um, you know, this awful event that happened yeah. and you're expecting them to, to sort of think logically and, 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 and be articulate and communicate. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, I think it sounds pretty crazy. Um, but, <laughs> excuse me, I do, um, I know that, and I was actually, um, sort of side note, I was involved when I was working as a victim advocate. I was involved in one of those Title IX processes before, oh. I mean, way before, this is going back probably 14 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. now. And I remember sitting there in this hearing and the 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 poor survivor I was there to, you know, provide support for, and she had to face this person, and mm. you know, had to be asked all these questions. Yeah. Oh, it's it's, it's painful and hard to watch. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So, you know, I moving sort of fast forward to to present day. Um, there's a lot of conversation around restorative justice. I don't know if you've heard. Yes. Have you heard any of this going on in yeah. the college campuses? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and actually, Nicole, at the conference this year, they we had um, David Karp from um, Skidmore College in oh. Saratoga, mm-hmm. who he's um, doing a lot of work around restorative justice with sexual assault on campus. And so I know it raises a lot of sort of eyebrows um, and concerns in the victim advocate community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think if it's done 
Right. If it's done in this vein of transparency, as, as you're saying, mm-hmm. and it's a process that is very um, strictly scrutinized by the people who are involved in the process. So victim advocates, um, treatment providers, um, whoever on the college in the college campus is trained to um, initiate the process. Um, I think it can be done much better than what's happening now um, in these Title IX hearings and uh, much more safely, much more effectively. Um, So when I go out and I talk to colleges, um, I do bring that up as a a sort of an emerging thing that colleges are talking about. Um, But I bring it up only in the with the understanding that it can't be this process that's kind of just thrown together mm. and not thought through and not, cons- you know, not considering, um, you know, or, or, or I mean, considering all of these steps that need to take place before a survivor and their, their perpetrator come together. So that's, so I don't, I don't know if that's something that you've, you know, talked to in your community and well, a lot that. more in the faith community to be honest with you mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think restorative justice is a is a more of a hot topic within the faith community people who care about social justice and are thinking mm-hmm. you know a little bit wider than the typical mm-hmm. maybe you know christ follower would do or something mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that is an overall picture of what healing looks like. And like you said, right. when sure. your client and your mission really is for a healthy community, we have to look at what restorative justice looks like and sure. Um, sure. not just punishing and people. I think, yeah, and I you know, I think offering it as an option, um, you know, giving the victim all of the options that mm-hmm. are available to them. Um you know, so that because a lot of times what they might want to hear is they might want to hear it from that person. You know, they might want to hear that person say, you know, yes, I did this, right. as opposed to all the denial that has right. gone on for, for months and months and months. Um, yeah, it makes me remember. So. Do you remember someone in your audience asked me a question about she was working on some sort of program where the offender would write a letter to their victim and mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. the victim want that and would it, would it mm-hmm. benefit anything? And I said, mm-hmm. absolutely. They may not read right. it for 20, 30, right. 40 years, but right. they would want that and it could be right. used in their healing. And I think what it, what it means is you're, you're, you're creating an opportunity um, there mm-hmm. for healing should the person decide right. to take it, right? Sure. And so for me, right. that is right. restorative. and mm-hmm. But it's allowing, it's just giving space for people to enter into some type of justice that is restoring, that is healing, should they choose to take sure. it. Should they choose, exactly, exactly. So so I think, you know, colleges really, I, I think colleges should do their their research and, and do their due diligence with, you know, seeing what this process mm. can look like in a very 
safe and, and healthy way. Um, yeah. But they have to be responsible mm. if they're going to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if they're not, it can really lead to, you know, some really negative, um, negative consequences. So, mm. And I think they also need to, in my opinion, put the victim's voice first. So it's always, it's always going to the victim and asking how Mm -hmm. they want it to look, how they would want it to proceed, where they want their voice to be heard or not heard. Some want to see justice on the front page of their local newspaper. Others don't want to ever hear about it again. They just want to know that Mm -hmm. something's being done. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a similar, there's, there's a similar um, process with, family reunification. So taking it outside of the Mm. um, college campus, it's almost, it's very similar when, you know, there's been um, sexual abuse within a family. And if the goal is for the family to come together, it's a very similar process, which is driven by the victim. It's driven by the victim. You know, that is the person who will say, this is what I want. Mm. This is what I'm ready for. You know, there's so much support involved um, with the systems involved and therapists involved, and family session, you know, all of that stuff. So the same can be done on college campuses. And do you have any even maybe stories of just how that's even gone well? Like, what are the things that you've seen work well? And like, do you even follow any of these cases long term? From the college campuses or well, from? Either way, outside? just, yeah, either. Mm-hmm. You know, like even family reunification. I think that's a really difficult sure. one. And it's yeah. always, I yeah. think it brings a lot of hope to survivors that desire that, to see that that can mm-hmm. work well. Unfortunately, I have not, mm-hmm. I have not seen that um, mm-hmm work um and that doesn't mean it's not happening yeah um but that that's means just that realistic just, too yeah i haven't seen i've there have been cases um so the experience that i mostly have is there have been cases where um the recommendation has been made that family reunification happens and happens in this way mm. and that recommendation hasn't been followed um, by the parties involved, because sometimes what happens is, um, you know, there is a time limit. So in family court, there's often a time limit on these cases where parents might be removed from the household. You know, they have, I think it's 18 months where they have to really get their stuff together. And, um, you know, we have to provide recommendations to the court about should families reunify. Um, And sometimes those recommendations are no. Um, And if the recommendation is yes, um, then assuming the parties follow through with the process, um, then it can happen. But, um, you know, in some of my experience, the recommendation, you know, their, their family court stuff has ended, even their, their child protective services um, stuff has ended because they've fulfilled all the obligations that they were supposed to fulfill. Um, sometimes kids actually turn 18 in the process. So then the system doesn't have any, um, any more um, sort of influence. 
Um, so that's happened as well, where um, kids, the victims have aged out, um, if I can use air quotes, yeah. <laughs> um, of the system. And so all of that kind of goes away. And the recommendation still stands just because the victim's now 18 doesn't mean that we wouldn't still make the recommendation. Um, but then people, it's up to them to follow it. And sometimes they, mm. they don't mm. without the weight of the system. So, mm. so I, I don't, some of the family reunification stuff or more of the family reunification stuff happens with um, in the juvenile system. So yeah. where um, treatment programs that, that serve juveniles who have engaged in sexually abusive behavior or sexually violent behavior. So, um, and I don't work with juveniles. I only work with adults. So they would, they would probably have more stories. um, Mm -hmm. Hopefully successful ones, you know, ones that, that are um, seen successful stories of change within your clients. Absolutely. And what do you think are some of the main predictors for that? Um, a great Definitely. therapist, right? <laughs> <laughs> Number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you definitely have to be good at your job. Yes. To do. yes. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the motivation for change has to be there for the client. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, I think, the biggest um, for me, just anecdotally, what I've seen clients who, and they, it's okay if they come to me and they often do with, um, you know, a lot of denial at first and not really understanding the impact of their decision making. Mm -hmm. Um, And just because they present like that at first is not a predictor that they're not going to do well on the the back end. Um, It takes time. It takes time to break through Mm -hmm. all of those defense mechanisms that we build up to protect ourselves, you know, protect our ego. So, um, but motivation to to do the work, um, yeah. a, a sense of buy-in. Mm-hmm. So when people first start coming here, you know, there's this idea that it's just I'm just an extension of probation or parole. I'm just an arm of the system. You know, I'm just here to to punish them and um, and hopefully they learn quickly that that's not the case at all. Um, You know, yes, I work with all these systems. I work very closely with these systems. Mm -hmm. That's the best, um, you know, that's the best approach for management is for the two systems, the supervisory system and the treatment um, system to work together. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, I have to demonstrate for them that I am, here to help them. Yeah. I'm here um, because I want them to uh, make positive changes in their life to help them recognize that what was going on for them at the time that they were committing the offense or the offenses um, is not the life that they want to be living. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I have to work to create that relationship with them mm-hmm. that I'm somebody who they can trust, which is very hard. It's very hard in this, um, in this dynamic because they know that I have to report everything back to their supervising officer. And they know, Um, you know, everything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes. And if you know that's wrong, then. Yep. 
And they do make disclosures of other things that have mm-hmm. um, that they've done in their lives, yeah. and we we want them to do that. We encourage them to do that. We encourage them to do that in a way that does not rise to the level of um, uh, of making a report. You know mm-hmm. um, that they, if you know, I'm a mandated reporter, and if they provide me with identifying information. Um, about people that they may have harmed, then I have to report that. And there have been times where they have done that, mm-hmm. and I've had to make those reports, mm-hmm. um, which changes the relationship again, you know, adds another barrier to yeah, that trust building. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, more times than not, they're good at communicating the behavior um, and, you know, some demographic information without providing too much identifiable information Mm. um, so that we can work with that. You know, we want to know that information because if you've got it in your history, I've got to know about it so that I can set appropriate treatment goals for you so that I'm targeting all of the needs that you have um, in your, in your past um, that may influence your future. So I have a question here and now this is kind of hard because I need your opinion on something that I've run by another good friend of mine who works with offenders. She told me, and I have a hard time buying her answer, and I want to know what you think. She (laughs) told me that in her experience, and she's very much a big believer in this, that pornography and addiction to pornography and usage of pornography is not an indicator of offense. That that does not lead someone. And I'm telling you, I've researched this for so long... (laughs) That I feel like she's wrong. Here's, here's my answer to that. Pornography in and of itself. So if somebody, meaning direct correlation, if somebody looks at pornography, they're going to go on to commit a sexual offense. No. No, okay. that's not. I get that. That's but not the a, a escalation and the devaluing of a human being, I mm-hmm. think over time... You're desensitized to it, and I think eventually you will want to act out on that. So I think what what we what we know about um, pornography, or what we know about um, you know what we look for in treatment, is uh, sort of more if you if you kind of take a kind of more um, comprehensive look or or big picture look, pornography and sort of uh, compulsion or obsession Mm -hmm. with pornography Mm -hmm. would be something that we would look, look out for and could be an indicator or a predictor for future reoffense. Meaning, so there's, um, you know, I talk about all these things are, that are, or I've been saying throughout our conversation Mm -hmm. that um, there are these uh, items that are directly correlated with risk of reoffending. Mm-hmm. One of those things, or a couple of those things, <laughs> which pornography would fall into, is sexual preoccupation, mm-hmm. sex, sex as coping, mm-hmm. and sexual deviancy. Okay. So I would absolutely want to know about somebody's history with pornography. Yeah. How often are they using it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, what are the themes that they're that they're looking at? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the motivations? For looking at pornography, is it affecting or has it affected their interpersonal relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, so, absolutely, it plays a role. I don't. I would never 
make the statement that it couldn't or wouldn't play a role in somebody's uh, decision making to commit a sexual offense. But she is not wrong in that there's not a a direct cause and effect relationship between viewing pornography and going on to, to offend. But it absolutely plays a role. And I think, you know, one of the other things that we are constantly assessing for are attitudes supportive of sexual offending. And when you look at those, Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at pornography and you look at how ingrained it is in our society, and I was at a conference listening to a speaker. She did a full day conference on pornography and the, just the statistics she presented about um, when pornography is introduced in children's lives. And as soon as I think it was like 90 percent of boys from 13, age 13 to 16 had viewed pornography. Mm-hmm. And what's what's even more concerning about that is the when they took a look at the themes, in, and this is just mainstream pornography, I think it was something along like 80 or something around 80% of the, the themes in the mainstream pornography they were, um, they used in this uh, research involved violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So when you're introducing these messages at the age of 13 mm. and, you know, there is research to support that desensitization effect with pornography, I, I mean, and 80 percent of that pornography involves violence. So you can see how these how these young men, mm-hmm. you know, and, and females, too, more men than, than women, but mm-hmm. how, I mean, it makes so much sense how, you know, they do wind up seeing these, starting to get interested into these very sure. um, deviant themes. Absolutely, especially in the video the games. Stuff. I mean, my yeah. little boys are yeah. so young, but, you know, they'll go over to a house that has older brothers easily and yeah. see them playing these games with women you know being beaten and you know prostitutes being you know beaten or pistol whipped and all these things and they get points for that i mean so my kids aren't allowed to go over anybody's houses because you never know what they're going to see i know i know i know it's so it's so hard with um the internet (laughs) allowing such access to this stuff um but also just the things that you're flooded with it that our children are flooded with You know, walking through the grocery store, if you take a look at the magazines on the racks of the grocery stores and you see what's being advertised, it's it's all very provocative um, pictures. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's those messages that we don't even realize we're getting um, from these very silent ways of of, uh, uh, media and marketing. It's, Mm -hmm. It's so... It's hard. It's so hard to to block them out. It certainly is. Well, I'm glad to hear that answer. That is a little bit easier for me to digest and to accept. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I hope your friend doesn't want to fight me after this. Ah, No. I think you gave gave her perspective credit, but also kind of shared a little bit of another side to it, which makes more sense to me. So that's great. Gosh, this has been really good thank you kelly for so much of your your (laughs) just your insights and your experience but also just your heart for for all involved i think it's you know just a breath of fresh air 
coming across people like you who really care and are doing everything they can to be a part of the solution to sexual assault and just recovery for victims and offenders. So, yeah, just thank you for all you're doing and, and keep up the good work. And hopefully our, our paths will cross again in the future. I love it that when I asked you to be on the podcast, you said, this is on my bucket list. I know, I know. I'm not a big social media person, podcast mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, for my own, it's sort of a job related hazard, you know, so yeah. um, I uh, try to stay very disconnected. But I do <laughs> listen, when I started my private practice, I started listening to podcasts. So mm. I'm, when, you, when you asked me to do this, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, we're just making dreams happen here one day at a time. It's you, Mary. <laughs> yeah, you are. Right. <laughs> just the clown that sits in and uh-huh. drinks up topics. Yeah. No way. That is well, so if I can, if I can uh, check my bucket, check this off my bucket list by doing this with you. I mean, it's really so, so special to me. You know, oh, that's so great to be able to to do it this yeah. way. Um, so the work that we all do is it's so important and mm. it's really for the same goal um so i i was so grateful to be able to communicate that to you so. well before we go and you kind of brought it up um what are some of your best self-care moves uh <laughs> i run i run a lot mm. um mm-hmm. so exercise is a big one for me mm-hmm. um you know vicarious trauma it happens and it happens often in this when you're working with with this population um so i've had to learn over the last 15 years um you know how to identify when it's happening yeah um sometimes you know and and some of that learning has come after i've already kind of been in the throes of it Mm. um but yeah so exercise is a big is a big one for me um being with friends and family and laughing and drinking wine, you know, (laughs) is another one for me. Um, I do stay off of social media. Um, I, you know, I don't have any Facebooks or or Facebook accounts or Mm -hmm. Twitter or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, because I, I just, I need to stay disconnected in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't watch a lot of, information um on the news about Mm. sexual assaults and um sex offenders being caught and all that um stuff because i i feel like it's so funny this is just a a funny story um you can include it or not it's up to you but my when when that (laughs) excuse me when that movie spotlight came out yeah you know about the the priests in in Boston. Yeah. My mother and she, my mother, my parents are an older generation. Mm. So she goes and she sees the movie and now she knows what I do for a living. Mm. She she comes home from the movie and she's like, Kel, you have to watch that movie. Mm. And I was like, mom, no, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I I don't need to watch that movie. I I live that movie like every day of my life. And she, she goes, she's like, you no, you have to watch that movie. The things that these people say about these mm. kids and, and watching it, to get, you have to hear what they say. I'm like, oh my God, mom, <laughs> what do you think I do every single Seriously, day? Right. I hear what they say yes. every day. Yeah. 
I get it. I like to torture myself. So I hardly ever, I don't watch any TV really. Um, And I barely sit down to to watch movies. But one day I had a night to myself and I was like, I am going to sit down and eat every snack in my pantry and watch a movie. (laughs) And wouldn't you know, I watched Spotlight and I was texting Mary and I'm pretty sure she was like, because I don't know why it's like, I always have to be like working or thinking about or like learning something or else I feel like I'm wasting time. And she's like, why are you torturing yourself? I'm like, I know. I should have watched Real Housewives. My bad. Just trash. Stick with trashy shows that are really, I have, I have developed a love for E, E network, whatever that is. Entertainment news. Oh yeah. I just watch the dumbest stuff. It's just trash. When I go on vacation, yeah, yep. when I go on vacation, I get Us Weekly magazine. You like, numb really out. It's You have to numb out in a healthy way, yes. you know? So yes. that's what yes. I think it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I did it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Did you? What did you watch? Uh, I don't know. A bunch oh, of trash yeah. that was just like, Mleh. I just didn't want to hear my brain. So I'm just like, yes. Yes. staring at the TV, melting into the couch. <laughs> uh, but it works. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad to hear some of some of your your things. Those are, that's good. Yeah. I think when yeah. you work with this kind of stuff day in and day out, you do have to remove oh, yourself. And you do. I Absolutely. think the social media thing is really smart for you. Very. And, yeah. 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 And the wine probably too. <laughs> the wine. Yep. I did go to Napa. I might have joined a few wine clubs. Yes. <laughs> they get you. Yeah. They get you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this was so sweet, Kelly. Thank you again. Yes. And just enjoy the Thank rest of your you. day. Take care. Thank you too, Mary. It was nice to talk to you Thank as well. Thank you. Thanks for all that all you right. do. We appreciate your time. Oh, Thank you both. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.